This is Randy Brock, and I am one-third of the Whiteman Brock Real Estate Advisors team. I just want to say thank you for listening, and also thank you for your patience. As we are all self-quarantining, we're recording this podcast remotely, so the audio quality isn't going to be what we would typically get in our recording studio at our normal office. I want to also remind you that real estate at this time is an essential service. So we are out showing houses when necessary. We can do that virtually. And people are having to relocate. So whether it's somebody moving into the Rochester area or having to move out of the Rochester area, we are certainly nimble on our feet. We have been taking listings and we have been working with buyers. We are here to help you and your real estate needs. So even though the world seems to have been turned on its head, we are able to help you whether or not you'd like to give us a phone call, shoot us a text, or chat with us by email. We can be found at whitemanbrock.com. That's W-I-G-H-T-M-A-N-B-R-O-C-K.com. Thank you, and enjoy this podcast we recorded with Kevin Bright on April 9th. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Home Matters podcast. This is our second quarantine episode of Home Matters, uh, working separately together. Uh, which is the new norm for everybody out there. But we are the Whiteman Brock Real Estate Advisors team. We are licensed in the state of Minnesota. And uh, we're here to chat about real estate. And also our guest today is Kevin Bright from Destination Medical Center. That's DMC EDA officially. Kevin, is that what it's called? Or at least is that just your email address at DMC EDA? That's official. You got it. All right. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, the real estate market, you know, it's, it's strange. Uh, we've been showing some houses. Ron, excited about having the opportunity to show a house later today, but it has been a, a bit, um, well, we'll just be real. It's been odd. It's different. Um, there are different rules depending on what kind of home you're showing. There might be one that's vacant. Uh, I was about to show a house that was not vacant, and uh, we just have some different little hurdles we have to either jump over or walk around. Ron, how are things going in your corner? You know, things are, are going well and, and different seems like almost an understatement these days because it changes um, almost daily, as we know. And <clears throat> obviously, with respect to real estate, everybody's wanting a prediction, wanting to know, is it affecting our values? Is it going, is it going to affect our market? And those answers, like, like anything, are just so unknown. Um, but it's always, you know, I always spend a few minutes looking at numbers before we jump into this podcast. And by the way, I miss seeing you in person. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's odd being this virtual, but, um, you know, our, our inventory numbers, we, right now we have 193 single family homes for sale and 71 additional townhouses and condos for sale. So those numbers look pretty normal. And the average price of our active inventory right now is 442000 So if you just looked at that as a snapshot, the numbers are a little bit low for this time of year, but it looks kind of normal. But what's interesting is if you go back and just look at what's happened in the last 10 days outside of everything that's happened in the last 10 days, with respect to real estate, um, we've had 91 properties go uh, under contract and go pending in the last 10 days and the average market time of those was 28 days on market with an average price of 295. So that tells me that obviously people are still out there, you know, buying and then you wonder where'd that inventory come from? Was it, you know, left over from eight weeks ago, but actually the new listings are coming up as well. In the last 10 days, we've had 98 new, well, seven of those are coming soon. And of the 91, 31 are already pending. So 
that leads me to believe that our market is still pretty active. I think it probably will stay more active in the lower price ranges. Uh, I say lower in that, you know, 350 and under, which is kind of our, what we call our bread and butter price range. But um, obviously uh, we've been out showing, we've got listing appointments. We got one coming up tomorrow. Uh, people working on getting their houses ready to go in the market. So, um, you know, it's just hard to predict what tomorrow and next week and next month will bring. But uh, so far, things look, all things considered, things look good. Yeah, I'm sure it has to help that mortgage interest rates are still very low. So buyers are in a position where they can do a lot with their money. And from the experiences that I've had too, is that uh, houses that are on the market are busy. And the only thing that I'm seeing that is is very different is that you used to have overlapping showings every once in a while before is that you'd yeah. have an appointment at 5 p.m. and there might be two other parties looking at a house, especially if it's one that's around or under 200,000. And uh, now it's, it's pretty much only private showings. And uh, just a lot of agents are putting it in the remarks that I've seen saying, you know, that, uh, you know, one even had a questionnaire that said, have you had the sniffles? Are you sick? You know, making sure that every person going into the house is, is healthy and asking for signatures on that, on one in particular. And otherwise, um, just following social distancing rules. And that's kind of been the recommendation from our, from our Association of Realtors as well. Yeah, it's, it's been really good to have the direction from uh, Minnesota Association of Realtors and our local association because they've been a tremendous help in keeping people distant, keeping people safe, but, but yet letting people do business, the real estate market happen, which I think is, is vital to our economy, obviously. Um, but it's been really nice to have the backup, not only in our systems, but just guidance on how to best practices and, and what to do and um, making some accommodations for coming soon and being able to have your house listed and being able to not have it showing uh, available for showing if, if, if something happens. So they've had a lot of flexibility, which is a great thing. Cool. Lynn, it looked like you were about to say something a little bit ago and then I was, I was talking, did you have something to throw in there too? No, I probably took a breath, but I do think, <laughs> <laughs> I do think that um, all of that is really good news because we do get that question all the time. How is this going to affect? We have a number of people working on getting their house ready to list. And the question always that comes back to us is how is this going to affect the market? And every indication that we have says that this is going to be okay and that people will rebound very, very quickly from this once we get through it. Um, and I think that, you know, with some of the stimulus packages and things like that, people aren't quite as. Um, not to downplay the people who are not working in the unemployment situation, but with some of the stimulus packages, people have a little bit of hope um, and they're not feeling quite so um, uncertain as say other times in our past, like 9-11 and things like that, there was, there was a great deal of concern about where do we go from here? And, I, and I'm not sensing that with this virus. I, I think people are just like, okay, let's do what we have to do to get this done and then get on with, you know, what is our new normal, um, but not the same kinds of anxiety that we have experienced in the past during situations like this. Do you agree, Ron? I do agree, and that, that's a really good way to put it, because even though we are uncertain about the winds, um, we don't have the same kinds of things we were dealing with with the mortgage crisis, for instance. But I do think that if there is a segment of the market that will be affected uh, more so, it will be the upper end 
which was really affected during uh, the mortgage crisis, you know, our, our way upper end homes and the homes that our <clears throat> older generation would be looking at, you know, they're kind of hunkered down and probably will stay that way for the interim. I think this is going to be a good reminder to us all too, and maybe even two years down the road, is that uh, we are asked often to give predictions about what's going to happen. And uh, personally, I'm happy to stick with, you know what, here's how things are today. Today, yeah. we are all at home, we're quarantined, but houses are going on the market, there are sold signs going up, people are moving around, yes, it's different, and there's no way we can say what's going to happen in two months or three months, but today, it's, it's not so bad. It's just weird. And we're, we're having to navigate the landscape a little bit differently. But um, shoot, if someone would have asked us in December how the spring market would have been, wow, no idea that it would be looking like this. So, you know, my guess is that Kevin is going to have some of the, that, that same answer for some of the questions we ask him, too. <laughs> <laughs> and that's totally fair. I think so too. <laughs> Consistency is a good thing. Right? I feel like uh, Kevin, Kevin, I'm sure is, is very happy in his home right now. Uh, but somebody who's cooped up working from their, in their home in their bedroom all day long or in their basement office, they might want to get out in the afternoon to go look at a house or two. Like just let me out from inside these walls. I got to go out for a bike ride. I got to go play or maybe even look at a house. But I guess that's a good enough segue uh, right there is to talk with our guest, Kevin Bright. Kevin, uh, you work for Destination Medical Center, and uh, I was going to have your title on the ready, but uh, why don't I just go ahead and ask you, what do you do at Destination Medical Center? Sure. Um, I'm the Energy and Sustainability Director um, for the Destination Medical Center and also the City of Rochester, so I'm a dual employee um, and provide sustainability leadership for both organizations. Does that mean you have an office at DMC and the City of Rochester? Or, <laughs> um, I don't have a physical office at the city, uh, but I'm there quite a bit. Um, so I'm housed in the community development department that was just formed this past July under Cindy Steinhauser's leadership. So I'm part of the development services group on the city. Awesome. So in the real world, in your Monday through Friday, what does that really look like for you with, with both organizations? What are you, what are you doing with helping us move forward? Sure. So I think it's kind of a, has two pieces to it. One is kind of inward facing and how we can uh, make sustainable or more environmental um, preferable changes within our organizations, the products we buy, how our employees are commuting to work um, and putting in or basically educating employees on understanding the benefits of those as well as uh, putting programs, policies in place that can help us make those decisions. Um, more readily on a daily basis. And then the second part is more community facing where um, what are pieces of infrastructure that would help the city become more sustainable or environmentally friendly? Um, what are transportation systems that could help us achieve the same thing? Um, what are the energy sources that would help uh, create a cleaner environment for us locally? And then there's also a component of how we define sustainability of uh, with the concern around social equity. So how can we make sure that we're basically um, creating fairness in our community, whether it be the environmental impacts of the decisions we're making, but also the products we buy and trying to make those more local and also trying to give a lift up to those in our community that maybe were, have been underserved or underrepresented for 
a long period of time. So it's um, kind of a triple bottom line approach of worrying, concerned about environmental, financial, and social equity concerns, both kind of internal and outward facing. Very cool. So on a daily, you know, or maybe not daily, so on a boots to ground sort of thing, you know, with projects that have already been implemented since DMC uh, has started in our city, what, what sort of things are we looking at right now that we might not realize have been a part of, of you know, some of the projects that you've seen come to fruition so far? Yeah, I think probably a couple big examples. Um, and I guess let me first say, or like qualify this of like, sustainability work is all about collaboration. So a lot of the things I'm going to mention are things that I had a small role in on, or uh, discussions with people that provided leadership. But I, I think probably one of the bigger announcements um, that the city has made in the environmental world in the past year is our uh, Rochester Public Utilities 100% Renewable Plan. So they updated their infrastructure plan last year uh, and their board approved two pathways to consider further, both of which would provide 100% renewable electricity by 2030 to the city of Rochester. Um, and that is a really big deal. I think they are one of the first municipal utilities across the country to make that announcement um, and chart that uh, path forward over the next 10 years. And from how that impacts the work that I do on a daily basis, that basically helps me um, advocate for transportation or building solutions that would um, be electrically based. So if fed by renewable electricity, they're not emitting greenhouse gas emissions, they're uh, not polluting the air. Um, so basically that by setting that uh, kind of high level goal and strategy, it has impact on all of these kind of things that um, are fed by electricity or could be fed by electricity, thinking about buses or heating and cooling systems for homes and buildings. Um, so that kind of uh, gives me a, a clear direction on what I should be advocating for, particularly in city properties, DMC buildings, but also communicating and educating the rest of the community around on ways that they can help um, amplify the strategy and further the environmental impact of this announcement and, and strategy from RPU. What's the timeline on the renewable energy? I, I've heard it. I just can't remember. What is, what's the hopeful timeline? Yeah, so the, the date is 2030. So it basically is, provides RPU 10 years to build out um, the infrastructure um, and electrical demand that is currently being served from SIMPA, which is our regional electric provider currently. They sell wholesale to RPU, and then RPU distributes that to community members. Um, Basically, SIMPA, the SIMPA contract is running out in 2030, so RPU is replacing uh, what was being fed by SIMPA over the next 10 years with renewable systems, which would be wind, solar, and then there's a gas uh, portion of it or battery storage elements um, that they're still kind of working through um, because battery technology is changing quite quickly. Sure. Is, it, is there some place that somebody could go to look at this plan and, and, and be able to understand an overview of how they plan to get there from where we are at today? Uh, so they do have an up, uh, presentation deck on their, on their website. So rpu.org, I believe is their website. Um, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it is a little bit of engineering speak, to be honest. I'm, okay. So I, I think people might would be able to get a sense of where we're headed, um, but we've also 
they're also doing quite a bit of community presentations in order to help provide further clarity around what they're thinking and why they're moving in that direction. Can I, I still can I ask oh. where they where you draw your examples? I mean, when you look at the city of Rochester, we're pretty unique in that we have a large population. We're still kind of a small city um, with a large population, um, lots of diversity. Um, and what we hear all the time is that it's really hard to find something to pattern Rochester after because we are a little bit outside the box, which is what we love about it. <clears throat> where do you look? to find examples of how this is working in other places. Can I ask that? Yeah, you can ask whatever you want. Um, <laughs> I think it varies to kind of depending on what specific aspect we're looking at. So our transportation challenges um, and system is probably analogous to many Midwestern cities. So cities that have had the time to kind of develop a grid system, um, maybe a little bit more reliant on a car than some of the more robust cities that have public transportation systems and things like that. So I think a lot of our examples that we're looking at are kind of cities that are mid-sized, um, growing into themselves a little bit or increasing in population. Um, cause those provide some pretty good examples or lessons learned that we, that are applicable to kind of what we're living through today. Um, and I think the same would apply for any other bucket, whether it be electric needs, um, kind of the unique industries, uh, the healthcare focus that we have would has us looking to kind of bigger cities like Cleveland or Boston or Washington, D.C., um, which is helpful, right, for the healthcare understanding and kind of the relevance right. of that portion of the economy and how it has impacts on the rest of the community. But we're probably not going to look to Washington, D.C. for transportation guidance in that They've had a subway for a very long time and it's well established and people understand how it works. Um, so it kind of depends um, on the specific topic. It, it is really unique. And as a result of that, uh, the comparison cities are kind of, there's a lot of them because of that, our uniqueness. Yeah. I was just gonna interject really quickly. If you go to rpu.org, there is a banner or there's a big box right away so you can see what the plan looks like uh, after 2030. So that, that is indeed rpu.org and there's a link right there to look at the plan. You nailed nice. it. All right. nice. Ron, you had something too. Yeah, I wanted to go back to, um, first of all, a little bit, I remember when you moved to Rochester. I don't remember how long ago that was, but tell me a little bit about where you came from. And also, I'm, I guess I didn't understand that you were uh, employee of the city and the MC. Did that was that the original plan? How did how did you how did you get here and how did that happen? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so I moved here about three years ago. I moved here in March 2017. Um, my background is I've worked in sustainability uh, since like 2007 2008, um, and I worked at two colleges before accepting this position for the DMC in City of Rochester. Uh, so for a number of years, I was at Harvard University working in the green building department. So they have a group of 25 people focused on sustainability, whether it be kind of occupant be, uh, behavior, occupant engagement. So um, things you buy, getting people involved in recycling, composting, turning lights off, engaged in energy conservation efforts, things like that. 
And then the team I worked on was more on the technical building side. So we've looked at, um, advised and provide kind of consulting services around sustainable design, lead certification, um, and uh, engineering level energy audits. So ASHRAE level two energy audits. And then we provided some uh, small project management services too. So we end up energy audit over and say, you know, by the way, we can help you implement these strategies too if you need help. Um, and we did that for a number of years and we kind of grew a number of those services across the university. As a result of our position, we could only work on projects within the college, um, but we would get asked often to help with uh, things or projects outside of the college. So a couple of us created our own independent consulting firm, uh, LLP, that was active until 2018 or so. So we had it open for about eight years and did projects across the country um, focused on sustainability or lead certification or energy auditing at colleges and things like that. So um, I was there for about six years and then I moved to Maine uh, where my partner and I started our family. Um, we have two young boys, which has been pretty fun, uh, and worked at Colby College, where uh, my job was to start the sustainability office. So they didn't have a sustainability person yet or an office created. And uh, it was a good challenge to build something from scratch. Uh, by the time I got to Harvard, they had a pretty well-established program. We definitely did some new things, but to have a almost army of 25 people focused on sustainability is pretty unique across the country. I would say there's not many organizations that are even that built up. Um, so to be an office of one was challenging and unique and fun and exciting um, all at the same time. Uh, so I worked there for four years and um, I don't know, a couple of the exciting projects I did in Maine was we built a, pretty big solar farm for the college. Uh, the first that it had and the largest at any institution in Maine. So it was set on 10 acres on the college campus uh, to help us reduce our electric costs and then also provided some research opportunities for students. Um, so that was pretty fun. Um, we did a lot of green building projects. We did some energy conservation across the college and was reducing or working to reduce its energy consumption across the campus by 3% each year. We had about a 20, 21% target over the course of seven or eight years. So mm. that was exciting um, and was a pretty big budget to do that, which is always nice to be able to uh, get the things done that you're trying to. And then I also got to work with students quite a bit more at Colby, which was a difference than Harvard. Uh, Harvard, we were a consultant, so we worked on a contract basis. So to approach a facilities manager and say, we want to work with students on this project or teach them how to install energy efficient light bulbs, they'd say, I just want the light bulbs. I don't want to also, you know, compensate <laughs> you for working with students to learn how to do it. There is a few that would do that for us, uh, but yeah. not many. Um, so Colby was nice because um, I had a team of 30 student workers and we ran occupant engagement programs. We did energy competitions throughout the year. We started kind of made the argument made the case for starting a composting program at the college um zero waste events which are ways that uh you literally come out of a huge banquet with one bag of trash and mm -hmm. probably 30 or 40 bags of composting or things that are diverted from the landfill um so student power mm -hmm. is really great and 
helping them understand the power they have on a college campus is pretty exciting to watch and see. And that's, mm -hmm. I think it's a good lesson to learn that a lot of people, I think, just are beholden to change and helping them understand that they can help make the change in the environment around them and that people are really interested in listening to them and making their experience fruitful at the college, in this case at Colby, uh, was really fun to be a part of and kind of see that one maturity but sense of responsibility um, and interest in just kind of having ownership over the, the future of the college was really exciting. Yeah, another weird one was we trained uh, students as bike mechanics. So I would pay them an hourly basis to just walk around campus and fix people's bikes so they could get biking. That's awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, it, was, it was fun. I mean, if there is an interested student with, and, and I could tell that if they were passionate about the idea or concepts, um, it usually led to some pretty creative programs and initiatives um, and pretty different. So the, every day is different, I think, in the sustainability world, which is fun. Um, but from there, you know, I, my partner's originally from Minnesota and I think when I was trying to convince her to like me, I said I would move to Minnesota at some point. <laughs> so that was your olive branch. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that, that answered my, that answered my next question because I was going to ask you, you know, how, why Minnesota and how much research did you do before you came here? But obviously that was uh, one of the factors. Yeah. Yep. Um, so she grew up outside the Twin Cities. So admittedly, we didn't know a whole lot about Rochester. I think she'd only been here for a couple soccer tournaments or something in, in high school. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a lot of internet research. And I would say the, some of the selling points really were um, or the things I remember us sitting down on the couch and looking at and like having a discussion around were the amount of bike trails that the city has. Um, living in Boston, we lived through a period where they were starting to build out their protected bike lane system. But for years I biked and just biked with the cars because there were no bike lanes in Boston. Um, so in the six or seven years that we lived there, we lived through them putting up bike lanes and protecting them and uh, separating them from the cars and vehicles. Um, and in Maine, there wasn't anything to speak of, right? And you're lucky if there is a street light on the road. So um, biking at night or during the winter time was a little scary just because it was so dark. You didn't have the light pollution that you have in a city. So there just wasn't the kind of this ambient light amounts that you could kind of rely on that people would be able to see you. Um, so it's just kind of forward thinking to like have a mid-sized city, a population of a hundred or so thousand people with a hundred miles of bike trails uh, that followed the rivers and pathways throughout the city. Um, having moved here, I've, I've learned more about how that came to be and kind of the, the flooding events that had some ties to it um, and kind of a great project that was cre created, not necessarily as a result of that, but definitely helps or contributed to the thought. Um, so it just seems progressive, uh, some forward thinking elements to it. Um, and we were like, well, we should live by that bike trail. We know <laughs> <laughs> kind of the benefits of something like that and how cool they are. So um, I think there's just pieces of it like that that made us feel pretty comfortable about it. Um, also the concept of just working at the DMC and city and 
being invested in a project that um, had a vision that I think resonated with me personally in the work that I do um, was also pretty powerful um, and kind of helping shape the community that I lived in was exciting. So it, having my family and kids be a part of that um, was also kind of a really interesting prospect and pretty exciting. I was going to ask you about um, how our city compares to some of those East Coast towns as far as our bike ability, walkability goes, just as a quick side note. I Last time I was in Boston was 1997. Uh, and when I was there, it was chaos I, when yeah. we were on the road. So um, is Rochester pretty forward as far as our ability to get around on bike? I think so. I think, um, yeah. I mean, in Boston, there is there's trail systems, but they're pretty difficult to get to when I lived there about at this point, like 10 years ago, which getting old. Um, <laughs> but I, I th also think it's just a learning process. And I think sometimes that's, uh, I don't know if misunderstood is the right word, but just not fully appreciated. And that learning the bike on a street is, is a skill that needs to be practiced and learned in order to feel safe doing it. Um, just putting up a bike lane uh, without some of the training or opportunities. I mean, the, the fact that Rochester has a bike group, we bike Rochester that offers uh, open community rides multiple times a week. Um, it's things like that that really help uh, grow the comfort level along with um, some of the elements that are kind of in discussion now, like just completely protected, um, removed from the street uh, bike and trailways that are just really like community amenities that are pretty unique um, and to have them in the, the the mileage that a city of Rochester like a hundred over 100 miles of bike trails mm -hmm. doesn't really re exist elsewhere um, we kind of have the exact opposite problem of any other community where we have all the tentacles of the system going throughout our community we just don't really have them connecting the employment centers downtown so that have to solve for that is a pretty minor problem in the grand scheme of things. Like we're not trying to site a hundred miles of bike trails anymore. We're trying to site four miles of bike trails in order to connect the systems that we already mm -hmm. have, which if I had to choose problems, like mm -hmm. I'd choose the four mile problem versus the hundred mile one. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's the, the really order of magnitude is a lot different. Yeah. It's hopefully really we'll get there. Point. I remember trying to get to an appointment at Mayo Clinic years ago and finding a place to park my bike was hard. I couldn't, find somewhere just to lock it up for a little while yeah people don't like trees but you could do that yeah that's true yeah go ahead lynn the other thing i love about what you said is how when you were on the college campuses that younger generation i don't know that they um get as much credit as they deserve for really being concerned about the earth and and the future and the problems that they're going to have to deal with um, I love having conversations with my teenage grandchildren who they, they have an ownership to this and they go, but, but these are going to be our problems. And, you know, I don't think that people give them enough credit. You, you hear a lot of slur against this younger generation. And I think they've got, I think they have an awareness and I think that they, they have some very strong opinions and some strong feelings and it's fun to listen to them. Sometimes it's a, you know, you kind of have to bite your tongue and go, well, you, you'll get it. it. You'll see it a little differently, you know, but allowing them 
that credibility to know that they they can take charge and they are we're going to be fine in their hands i think so it's fun to hear you say that yeah i think just allowing each generation some grace too i think would be helpful in that uh the challenges that generations face are are different and are always evolving and changing so for i mean i'm what's what i have in the back of my mind here is the okay boomer thing and like i don't think throwing or throwing shots is going to get us to the place we want to be uh mm-hmm. at all so having some yeah. grace and understanding that we're all going through different things and that we will continue to be and the challenges ahead of us are going to be different than the ones we faced in the past there'll be some relevance that carry over for sure um but we can always get better. So yeah. taking and that change approach. is hard. Yeah. Right. It's difficult. Allowing um, grace for each generation. Wow, man, that's amazing. I mean, we, we, it is, it really is because we all are in our lanes doing life, you know, and, and some of us, some are e- across those lanes easier than others, but allowing each generation grace. That's, that's amazing. Um, well, and each generation brings something to the table. It's, um, yeah which is probably what we haven't learned when we're young is that each generation brings something to the table. But if we can, in our culture, hasn't been really great about this, but, but teach each other. Um, sometimes the older generation doesn't like to be taught by the younger generation. And if we can learn to teach each other, and if we do that, they hopefully gain respect for some of the things that we have walked through and the roads we've walked and the lessons we've learned. It's all about that mutual respect, I think, for for each other, regardless of age. Yeah, I think the ability just to have conversations and respect each other's opinions would get us very far. Um, so I'm hopeful. Yes, I am too. So if you could just wave your hand and, and make any project uh, come to fruition um in rochester that that you see what what would that be what would be your what would make you really excited just to, to make this happen i'm pretty excited i guess uh about the transit circulator project and all the components of it that are coming together um i think the concept of um opening up parking downtown for visitors and community members that want to patron stores downtown and businesses um, is going to be great. Um, on top of that, it affords us an ability to address some of the housing needs that we have in our community, particularly affordable housing, um, in a way that many communities can't, um, that those opportunities don't exist. Um, so to, to go through or work through a process and planning where we're citing transit villages, the two ends of the transit circulator. We're also evaluating what every station could and should have built up around it uh, with every station um, considering the development of mixed income and affordable housing at different price ranges, I think is gonna set up Rochester for a pretty amazing future, right? It's just a mindset that I think is unique to a city of our size. but comes out of uh, great leadership, I, I would say, on the, the city and 
DMC and county side, um, advocating for issues that are important to the community. So listening to constituents that are here in, in the city and county. Um, but I, I think is unique for most mid-sized cities uh, to one, have a like discussion around mass transit and developing a mass transit system. And then the second around, um, what should we built up as part of that system? Like how can we embellish that piece of infrastructure uh, and ask the question of like, all right, well, how else, how can we make this better? Uh, and that's what a lot of this kind of development affordable housing discussion is around is what other elements can further embellish this transit system to make it the best thing it can be. The transit cool. system, what, what phase are we in there uh, again? Remind me. So we at the moment kind of have a, um, an approved transit plan. The transit plan kind of has four major components to it. Transit circulator is one city loop is another so that, uh, it's a name for connecting kind of the bike trail system in town, um, with some new pathways in the downtown that are protected and, and kind of trailways have a trail feel to them. Um, the third is parking strategy. Uh, so to be clear, there is parking in the transportation plan and the addition of 8,500 spots downtown is what was new spots downtown was part of the transportation plan. And also part of this is a transit uh, demand management system. So I don't know if you've heard or used the Arrive Rochester app, but it helps um, kind of the software behind all the hardware associated with that integrated transit study, the hardware meaning the infrastructure, the things that are built, the software is um, strategies, incentives, other programs that we can help to encourage people to try transit or bike or walk to work on a daily basis and provide some small incentives to encourage them to do that or programs through their employers to do the same thing. And then the, the last piece of it is a street redesign portion. So part of the transportation plan downtown was looking at the existing street network we have and trying to figure out what modes can be accommodated on the streets themselves, understanding that not every street needs to accommodate every mode or user. So by that, I mean transit, single occupied vehicle, pedestrian or bike, uh, but figuring out how we can build out a network where modes can be accommodated on certain roads moving through the downtown um, and making those users feel comfortable on those particular corridors too. So kind of all that's in the plan. And right now we're working on kind of an earnest on the transit circulator part um, and working with Mayo, who's the landowner for the West Village and the county, who's the landowner for the East Transit Village um, and compiling uh, a lot of studies to make a competitive application to the Federal Transit Authority to receive some federal transit aid for the transit circulator concepts. So part of that is the transit oriented development work that's going on. There's just a public meeting earlier this week, uh, soliciting community input. Um, a little more difficult to do in the times yeah. we are. I mean, you could have an open house and encourage people to come through and now it's all done virtually. So um, some new unique challenges as, as a result of COVID. Um, uh, basically, we're trying to wrap that up by September in order to submit our application to the Federal Transit Authority. Mm -hmm. And the benefit of that is um, they would help fund up to half of the project. So the amount of so money are, at play to help us make the project happen. So what are some of the roadblocks that you hear? And 
I mean, more, most commonly people put in front of you. And what's your response to those? So if someone is considering moving to Rochester and they're listening to this podcast, um, what are some of the more commonly asked questions? And, and here's your platform to say, this is our response to that. It's an interesting question just because a lot of Christine's family live in and around the Twin Cities. So we've been hearing these questions for a while now, I, I guess, since we've moved here. Um, I think, I don't know. I think some of it's like personal to me. So when we get a question like, why did you choose Rochester or why did you move there? I, th I think this place has a very unique aspect mix of urban and rural that is difficult to find elsewhere. Uh, we didn't want to raise a family in Boston. That's part of the reason why we moved to Maine and looked for an opportunities there. Um, what we found was that it was a little too remote, but there are a lot of things that we liked about it where we could go to an apple orchard that was 10 minutes away or go to a state park or national park or ski or um, fish or go out experience the outdoors and be in fairly close proximity to do it. In Boston, things like that are in close proximity, but there are millions of people that want to do the same thing. So when you find them <laughs> and go to the proximate places, you're there with 30,000 people, which is and not social, social distancing. distancing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in uh, Maine, you'd go do those things like five minutes from your house and be completely by yourself. So I, I think in Rochester, it's a nice mix of like, you can go pick apples and you'll see a few families out there in the fall. Um, but you're not overrun with people either doing the same thing and almost getting run over and like everyone in grumpy moods because it's so crowded and um, making it that not that much fun. So I, the way I explain it, I guess, is I enjoy the mix of like having an active and vibrant downtown. And that's part of what I appreciate about the Destination Medical Center project is that's part of the vision for it is being able to go and experience that part of living if that's what you're interested in, but also being able to experience the, the outdoor recreation, um, agricultural lifestyle too, that isn't that far away either. Um, so I, a good example of that even this week was we uh, are participating in a pig share and the farmer called us and like said, what kind of cuts of the pig do you want? So we talked through that for about 15 minutes and then she invited us out to the farm. So we might, go pick up our pig at the farm with our kids and like have them experience that, which is not something you get to do in, in Boston or a bigger right. municipal area. There's just uh, stronger relationships, bonds and experiences that you can form in a place like this that you don't get in a big city. Um, you probably get in a more rural place, but then you don't get the unique restaurants or kind of the things that are created as a result of having Mayo Clinic being here, based here, and all of the visitors uh, that just helps provide other entertainment, retail, and dining opportunities that don't exist in small cities either. So I think it's a great mix of those two. Quick side note to that. Uh, I'd like that contact information. My family's been looking at doing the same thing in regards to the pig. 
So I don't know. Are we allowed to plug things here? Well, know. later you can you can send me that email later. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so you've just I, I've got a bunch of questions that have popped up uh, just in your what you've been saying. What's the time frame? I'm just asking you to predict the future. Uh, by the time we start to see something happening in the transit center, when are we going to start to see things being demolished there around the old Seneca building uh, and rebuilt for this transit center? That I don't know. Um, I know getting this application in place first is kind of the first step and then some review from the federal government to see, um, you know, how we fare, I think is the, kind of the next big milestone and then that'll dictate some of the schedule following that. Sure. Um, but I, the end game or kind of the schedule that we're working to is having it open in 2025 so it's sounds like a long time and it is um but uh actually i need to check the date or i'll look up the date i think but it's That's a period okay. of time that it will take in order to build this thing so that'll be you know 2025 for a big change like that is kind of a blink of an eye though too i mean um, yeah. we've been here for more than 20 years and i swear it feels like far less than that I mean, things have changed uh, have very quickly. Really, Randy? You've been um, here 20 years. Almost 20. Yep. Wow. We're coming up on it. So um, technically it's, what, 18 now? So, That's amazing. Um, long enough, but... Uh, no, it hasn't been long enough. What am I saying? I'm just kind of, <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere else. <laughs> um, Kevin, the other question I had for you too is in your experience, and I know this just because I know you well enough, uh, how has your experience been biking to work? I know you, you love your bike uh, in the city of Rochester. Um, are you one who's able to get out and bike in January, November, those colder months? Are you doing that? Yeah, yep. Um, I think probably I'd bike every day if I could. It's more dictated by like the meetings that I have over the course of a day um, and being scheduled back to back a lot of times just doesn't give me the time to bike to the places that I'd like to. Um, but yeah, I, I biked over the course of this winter. Um, I am a recent uh, new owner of a e-bike, which has been pretty amazing. Highly recommend if that's something you're interested in. Um, yeah. I thought the benefit was, or I went into the purchase thinking the benefit was going to allow me to be less sweaty in the summertime getting from meeting to meeting, like having a little bit of a, a help wouldn't have me exert less effort. So I'd be more presentable, um, which I'm still trying to prove out. So we'll see, you know, stay tuned for that this summer. But one of the benefits in the wintertime was, I mean, I'm like anyone else, I think, and like going out in really cold weather uh, for a period of time, just some days I'm not up for it. Um, but having a bike that helps me get home a little bit just mentally is like, well, I'll get a little help. So if I feel like taking a little easy today, like that's cool. And mm -hmm. it's not as big of a deal. Um, and also bikes just get a little tougher to work in the wintertime. Like they get cold like anything else. And a little more grinding and stuff. So uh, that little bit of help I found really, really great this winter too. Cool. So. I think some people are afraid of winter. So what sort of advice do you have to give to anyone who would want to get out and bike at that time of year? Yeah, just dressing appropriately. Um, 
so even this winter, I don't, uh, I mean, I have little covers over my wheels that you can buy off the internet and there are less expensive ones or more expensive ones. The less expensive ones are like 15 bucks and they attach right to your bike and they're pretty easy to install. They don't require any tools or anything, just having some strong enough hands to mm -hmm. tighten the components of it. Um, but that, and then hat and gloves and a good coat, uh, you could have like a face mask or a buff on windy days on particularly cold ones. Like when it gets to zero, you probably want to cover your, your face a little bit just cause it gets numb and then it takes a few hours for your face to be able to move like it's oh, used sure. to. <laughs> you don't want to lose an ear. That's yeah. not good. Um, yeah. and then around town too, we've got a, we, I've seen some of those bike repair. I mean, you mentioned something about bike repair with students, but we have some of those bike repair stations. Has that been part of this kind of the city movement to get those in to more spots? Um, I'd say that's probably, it's driven from a number of organizations, but the parks department has been pretty good about it, um, installing them along the trail system so that if someone gets a flat as they're out on a bike ride on the trail system, they can try to do some, there's some tools available to them and a bike pump to help them make some fixes in order to get home. Um, so that's kind of being built out and I think they're planning on installing a few more. Uh, the library is looking at installing one as well. Um, so there's been a community collaboration to build a, or build out a bike sharing program that's free. So we operated that last year. Um, we have a, and a, a little bit of the year before that, but we had over about 1200 users of that program. A lot of them out of the library um, using the free program and they're largely using it to make errands and grocery store runs, knowing that you're saying the transit system doesn't run quite frequently enough to be convenient for them. Uh, they don't live within walking distance to carry a bunch of grocery bags home from the grocery store. So there, a lot of people were using the, the bike sh share program um, in order to help them make those errands. So something we bought last year were two electric cargo bikes. So after we found that out, we said, well, there's some better pieces of equipment out there that can help people move heavy things. So we piloted uh, two e-cargo bikes and those are just provide a bigger back and we put a big basket on the back and, and the front to just hold a lot more grocery bags in them so people could make uh, those runs easier. Um, and there's just a element of dignity to them, right? And the, so to be able to sign out an electric bike for free and experience that for some folks in our community is something they necessarily wouldn't be able to do. So um, it was fun being able to offer that to folks and uh, it was, signed out pretty much every hour that was available wow. last summer uh, so really heavily used yeah it was really popular that's cool yeah is that going to be back where did you find those before and will it be back yeah we so again it's a rad power is the name of the company that makes this e-cargo okay. bike um and yeah they'll be back so we'll still have the free bike share program at the library and then we're working through a proposal process to see if a private bike share, scooter share company wants to operate here in Rochester. Um, if you remember, we had that scooter pilot last mm -hmm. year uh, that was pretty heavily used as well um, over six weeks or so. Um, so the thought is to kind of set that up in a more formal contract and then also try to get maybe some electric bikes in and around downtown, maybe a little bit farther too, to see if those are used um, from the same vendor or maybe a different vendor. 
Cool. Yeah. And I have one more question before I hand it over to Ron and Lynn too, if they have some. Um, what are some of the unseen um, energy conservation tools that are used? I'm referring to One Discovery Square. So you've got this brand new building. Uh, it's you know, part of the DMC project and, and you've got a lot more buildings eventually over time. What are some of the un unseen green projects that went into that building? I'm sure there has to be some within there as far as energy usage. Yeah. Um, they're mostly hidden and I, and I think that's part of the, I think when people think about green buildings, they're like, oh, we should see solar panels on it or a wind turbine coming out of the roof and uh, just some <laughs> novel things that we're not used to seeing. Um, but really the, the application of it is pretty simple and insulating the walls of the structure well, as well as the roof and being mindful about the amount of insulation that you're adding. Um, and then specifying uh, highly efficient mechanical equipment, whether that be air handling units, chillers, or uh, the heating boiler equipment for the building. If you check those two boxes, uh, you're going to get a considerable way down the path, just like any home too, right? Mm -hmm. The first thing that any home energy auditor comes in, they say insulate your attic and your basement joint eaves, and then look at your boilers, put in a programmable thermostat to make it run less often. And if you do those things and you're like in pretty good shape, uh, you'll, your utility bills will go down pretty dramatically. Same thing applies to commercial buildings. So that's a lot of what's contained in one discovery square. I think beyond like energy conservation, there's a few other elements of covered bike storage. There's a shower facility in the building. So if people want to commute to work on a bike, um, they can use that shower locker room facility to help them get ready. Uh, there's a lack of finished flooring in the building. So if you walk through it, it looks nice. It's polished concrete, um, but there's no like finished material over it, like carpet or wood. And that was a conscious decision to one limit the amount of materials that are being used in the building. Um, and also finishing kind of a material that was needed in the facility anyways, right? The, the floors are already poured concrete. So you could put stuff over them or you could just polish it and use that as the final flooring. So um, there's a lot of kind of little things like that where uh, decisions were made to just um, not have equipment be integrated in the facility if it wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. needed. So there's no irrigation system either. Just the plantings were selected appropriately that they wouldn't need a permanent irrigation system to subsist there and rely on natural precipitation that occurs here in Minnesota to live and, and thrive. So a lot of little and, things like that. And there's a lot of natural light in that building too. Is there a challenge when you have so much glass in a building to make sure that it's well insulated? Uh, well insulated glass, but also mindful of where you're putting it. Um, so it's actually kind of an interesting case study. Mayo just worked through a, this very scenario on the Generos building, the one where they made the addition on top of the existing facility, which is by the St. Mary's campus. If you drive back there, you can, you'll be able to see it pretty prominently. It's right kind of behind the, the major St. Mary's building. Um, but they set an energy target for themselves for this addition, saying we need to meet this amount of energy per square foot for this new design, this addition that we're putting on the facility. And in order to evaluate that, they looked at a lot of different building types. Um, so more glazing, less glazing, more wall, less wall. And they realized their initial design with the amount of glazing they had wouldn't help them meet or wouldn't allow them to meet their energy target that they set for themselves. 
So they kept glazing, I mean, you'll see glazing on the front of the building and then the sides are more wall. And in previous designs, the sides were more glazing. Um, so I, I think it's part of this too is um, design aesthetics gonna change, right? I, I, glazing just is not as good of an insulator as a, a typical wall is. Um, and just being mindful of where you want uh, views to the outdoors, daylight to come into a facility and planning around that and being mindful about it. Excellent. Ron and Lynn, I know we're, we're probably about out of time. I know we want to respect Kevin's schedule here, but um, if you have any further questions, that'd be fantastic. Oh, Ron, you're muted. You're gonna have to press your button. <laughs> I am muted, sorry. That's all right. I, I don't have any uh, further questions, but this has been amazing. And I really like, um, when you were talking about being in Rochester and having it a vibrant city downtown feel, restaurants, shopping, things to do, but yet being able to be in a, in a farm or a cornfield within 10 minutes, you know, that's, that's a reoccurring theme, I think, of all of us who live here, but it's hard to get that concept across to people who don't live here until you've actually been here. So, um, and that's, that's also what I love about it here. It's just, it's, it's, it's a good mix, a good blend. You can be by yourself, uh, be in a state park within 15 minutes if you want or you can be part of a group, um, an active group right downtown. It, it, it's, it's, so thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I, I like that, um, you know, there's, there's reassurance that there's an intentional plan. <clears throat> Sometimes mm -hmm. it feels like things are just happening haphazardly and you go, what the heck is this going to look like at the end of the day? Um, but that's not how Rochester does things. And especially when the Mayo Clinic is involved, that's not how they do things. So it's very reassuring to hear you talk about the plan, that, that we know what we're doing. We, we, we have a focus going from A to, to Z and, you know, allowing the public to trust that. I, I think that's really, really important. So thanks for sharing that piece of it too today. Yeah, happy to be here and thanks a lot for having me. Um, we should do this again when we can all gather around our actual table because that's really fun too because we get to you know interact just a little bit differently. Yeah, sounds great. Kevin, thank you very much. Uh, everybody who's listening, this is Kevin Bright. He works at the Destination Medical Center and uh, in the realm of energy and sustainability and uh, we sure appreciate you and all that you do and, and thanks for chatting with us today. Yeah, thank you very much. Have a great day and, and be well. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, we are uh, Whiteman Brock Real Estate Advisors. We are at whitemanbrock.com and uh, DMCEDA dot, is it org or dot com? Org. Oh, DMCEDA dot org. Thank you very much, Kevin, and have a great day.